Good morning! Suppose there was a Christian sailor in World War II, and sadly his submarine is blown to smithereens, and part of his body is found by a shark who has a snack on his remains. Now, this shark is subsequently snared by a whaler and hauled into port in Portland, where it is consumed by the whaler's children. However, some of the sailor sank to the very bottom of the sea, to the ocean's depths, where it is ingested by a Japanese spider crab. And if you've never seen one, Google it, it's particularly horrifying. A crabbing crew catches this beastie, and since he is tasty, he is packed on ice and sent to a diner in Denver to be half of a surf and turf dinner sometime later. Now here is the question. At the resurrection, will this brother be revived from the, from the bits in Denver at the diner or from the portion in Portland? Questions like these are, are sometimes posed by those who oppose the doctrine of the believer's bodily resurrection. Sometimes they're given by uh, young people to youth pastors to try to stump them. Um, sometimes questions like this are asked by, by cynics and, and critics who assert that the mechanics of bodily redec- re, uh, resurrection are simply ridiculous. But sometimes, questions regarding the mechanics of bodily resurrection are entirely sincere, and they come from Christians. Some saints fear if we cremate Uncle Henry and spread his ashes at the sea next to his beloved boat, well, is that going to be a problem at the resurrection? And so, whether the question is sincere or a smear, the questions themselves are quite clear, and they're basically this. How are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they receive? And our text today is found in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 35 through 58. And it's going to answer those two very questions. And so as we turn in the Word of the Lord to 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 35, Let us first turn to the Lord of that Word and ask Him to bless our time in this text that we might get answers in areas that Christians sometimes find confusing. And so, Father, we invite You as a good and gracious God. Jesus, we invite You as Lord of the church. Holy Spirit, we invite You as the ultimate author of Scripture. You inspired the men whose pens You moved. We ask, Holy Spirit, that You might illumine this text, that we might become aware of the mechanics of the resurrection, not to satisfy a curiosity, but that we might have an ironclad conviction of just how good it is that there's more in store for the believer, and it's not just spiritual, it's also bodily. I pray that we would understand this clearly and hold to it tenaciously that it might encourage us mightily. I pray this in the name of Jesus, whom we love. Amen. The Word of God says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting at verse 35, But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Paul doesn't put up with this line of inquiry from the cynic and critic. He says something quite acidic. He says, you foolish person! What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as He has chosen. And and to each kind of seed, well, its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there's one kind for humans and another for animals and another for birds and another for fish. And then there are heavenly bodies. There are earthly bodies. But but the glory of the heavenly is one kind, and the glory of the earthly is another. Uh, There's one glory for the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another of the stars. And, And each star differs from the other in its glory. And so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. 
But what is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, then there is also a spiritual body. And thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. And the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural. And then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth. He was a man of dust. And the second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, Jesus Christ. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven, nor does the imperishable, or, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Well, the sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, be always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And this brings us to our first point from our text today, from our first question. What will our resurrected bodies be like? What will our resurrected bodies be like? Now, we know a lot about our current bodies. Our current bodies, uh, they break and they ache. Our current bodies wage a war against us, the flesh and the spirit. But our resurrected bodies will have none of those limitations or inhibitions. As we see in letter A today on our outlines, our resurrected bodies will be bodies fit for eternity. Our resurrected bodies will be bodies that are fit for eternity. Look at verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, but what is raised is imperishable. Friends, I don't know if you've ever thought about this metaphysically, but we don't want to go to heaven in these perishable bodies. Uh, we need something durable, something fit for the eternal. Uh, who wants to hobble crippled in all of eternity? That would be terrible instead of beautiful. Uh, we need bodies whose knees never need replacing. Uh, we need feet that don't ache from standing. Uh, remember, we're going to be walking, the Scripture says, on streets of gold. Not a lot of give on the heavenly pavement that we currently use as a form of payment. We're going to need a better set of feet for that. But, but God has all of this all sorted out. He's going to suit us up in bodies that are well-suited for eternity. You see, what is sown in weakness, this body that we know that aches and breaks, is going to be raised in power, and it's not going to ache and break. These bodies that are, that are subject to, to, to decay and death will be traded in with bodies that death cannot reach and decay can never touch. Verse 50, 
I, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood, these kind of bodies can't inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Let's put this really practically. If your hip hurts when it rains, if you sneeze in the breeze because of the pollen in the trees, I want you to be encouraged, Christian, this is a temporary situation. But really, the physical benefits are nothing compared to the spiritual benefits of our resurrected bodies. And that brings us to letter B, you see. Uh, it will be a body fit for God's glory. It will be a body fit for God's glory. Look at verse 43. It says, this body that we have is sown in dishonor. Now, these bodies constantly trip us up, don't they? They continually get us into sin. Our flesh wages war against us. Verse 43, this body is sown in dishonor, but it's going to be raised in glory. It's going to be raised in glory. Now we know the Bible teaches that you and I were made for the glory of God. But in these corrupt, corrupted bodies, with our current fallen natures, we often behave like depraved creatures. We, we continually fall short of the glory of God. We, we may have the desire that, that whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we do it all to the glory of God, but we find instead Romans 7 is our situation. In Romans 7, Paul says, I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, I do the very thing that I hate. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, in these bodies, in these fallen bodies. For I have the desire to do what is right, but I don't have the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want, I keep on doing. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And thanks be to God, through Christ Jesus, our Lord. There's the answer. Our resurrected bodies will not be capable of sin, but rather they shall only do what they were originally created to do before sin ever crept in in the human condition. Our resurrected bodies will only and always bring glory to God Almighty. Our fallen flesh will be redeemed so that God can be esteemed every day, in every way, for every moment, in all of eternity. Galatians 5 puts it this way, for the desires of our flesh, this fallen nature, this fallen creatures, this body we're imprisoned in, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But friends, our resurrected bodies are made for God's glory. In eternity, the unholy trinity of enemies will be just a distant memory. The world that squeezes us into its mold, it's going to be rolled up like a scroll. All of creation will no longer groan in anticipation for redemption, but rather this fallen world will fall. And a new glorious world will be made and, and the heavenly city will touch down on the new earth and we will be with our Lord face to face. Our, our enemy, the devil, who, who tempts us so ruthlessly and insidiously and mercilessly and continuously, well, he will be incarcerated for all of eternity in the lake of fire never to tempt us again. And lastly... <laughs> Gloriously, our fallen flesh. Well, it's going to be long gone, isn't it? And our new resurrected bodies will be our new temples to bring God glory, and we'll be able to do that perpetually. Which brings us to point C. What will our resurrected bodies be like 
Well, it's a body fit for eternity, and it's a body fit for God's glory. But, but let her see, it's a body fit for perfect intimacy, ecstasy, and camaraderie with God. Remember, in the beginning, before sin crept in, Adam walked with God hand in hand in the cool of the day. There was this intimacy with God. There was a camaraderie with God. Uh, it says in Scripture, so-and-so was a friend of God. And this produced joy. Joy is, is what Christianity ought to bring, but, but sin and my sinfulness, well, it keeps me from the peace of God. It robs me of the joy of God. But I'm about to get a body. You're about to get a body. Every believer is about to get a body one day that is going to be fit for intimacy, ecstasy, and deep camaraderie with God Almighty. And it's something that we can barely conceive of from this side of the equation. Now there were some people in Corinth, in the church of Corinth, who were incredulous at all of this. Verse 35, but someone will say, hey, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? Paul is appalled that folks would choke on this at all. He takes a hard tack and he beats the acidic cynic with his own stick in, 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 in rather ungracious language. I want you to listen to how the Holy Spirit minces no words with those who would reject God's word on the question of the believer's bodily resurrection. You fool, our translation. You foolish person. There, there's not a lot of ambiguity there. The idea that you should dismiss the bodily resurrection is Foolish and unchristian. You foolish person, verse 36. And then he gives an illustration. Now, what you sow does not come to life until it dies. And what you sow is not the body that's to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as He's chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. Paul argues, how can you ask how can something die? Because our, our human bodies are going to die, and then we're going to get something glorious. And they're like, oh, that's rubbish. But, but look at the world around you. How can you ask if something dies, how can it be turned into something greater and better? And he says, just look at nature. Look every single day all around you all the time. And you're going to see that God does this all the time. Every single day, God takes the God of nature, takes the dead and the discarded bits of the plants, and he transforms them into something glorious. Uh, think about this. Uh, right now it's tulip season. And if you went back, what did we have? We had these ugly brown bits. The, the, the leftover bulb. The husk of what was so beautiful. That's all that was left. The flower faded. The, 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 the stem withered. It died in our lawn. We dug it up. We dried it out. And there it comes back. Beautiful in newness each spring. He does that with everything. A, a little bitty acorn turns into a mighty oak. A kernel of corn turns into an ear of corn, a mighty stalk in the summer. And when it dies, it's planted and it comes back again. He does this over and over. In fact, our Lord Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. God is in the business of taking these horrible things and doing something amazing with them. And so friends, the God of nature is the God of Scripture. And just as seeds die and are transformed into something far greater and far better, so shall it be for you and me as believers. Our, our resurrected bodies are going to be head and shoulders better than the best we've ever seen. You get ready, friend, because the best is yet to come. And Paul then critiques the, the cynic and the critic. And he basically asks his own question. Is God really so insufficiently creative that he can't improve on his design? Is God really so insufficiently creative that he can't improve on his design? A Henry Ford and the Ford Motor Company can make a better and better automobile over time. But the Lord can't improve on this body's design? Really? That's your argument? Paul asks. Because it's rather absurd, isn't it? Here's how he says it. He said, God gives a body as He has chosen. And to each kind, His own body. 
For not all flesh is the same, and there is one kind for humans, and another for animals, and another for birds, and another for fish. So there's all this variety of types of bodies, and God did all that. God put variety in the flesh of his creation. I don't know if you've noticed, but humans are a lot different than hippos. Human flesh, animal flesh. And yet neither humans nor hippos have uh, the kind of light bone density and feathers to give them the propensity to overcome gravity. Rather, only the birds can do that. The insects, some of them can do that. And so there's a difference between animals and birds and humans. And I don't know if you've noticed, but neither Colin Powell nor the spotted owl, if you submerge them in water and don't let them up, live. And yet, God has made a certain kind of flesh that if you submerge it and never let it up, it's able to turn the water into the oxygen it needs to survive. You and I would drown, it will flourish. And we call those fish. Listen again to Paul's argument in this. For not all flesh is the same. There's one kind for humans, there's another kind for animals, there's another kind for birds, there's another kind for fish. And God has already shown himself to be sufficiently capable that's to create a body uniquely suited for its environment. If God wants to position you in the ocean, he can give you a kind of body where you can process the water and the oxygen that's in the water, H2O, and you can survive. If he wants to put you in the air, he can give you lighter bones. If he wants to, he can do whatever he wants. He can make a body suited for the environment in which he intends to have it situated. And so, if God is going to give us a body for eternity... He has a perfect plan to make resurrection bodies perfectly suited for our new eternal home. And so Paul is going to then go from the terrestrial, birds and fish and animals and humans, he's going to go from the terrestrial to the celestial and say, see, look over here too. Don't just look across, you can look up and see God can do this. God has no problem with variety in creativity, in fitting the various bodies that are in the atmospheric heavenlies. Look at verse 40. There are heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. Now he just talked about the earthly bodies, the animals, the fish, the fowl, and us. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is in another. There's the glory of the sun. Wow, it's bright. And then there's the glory of the moon that only comes out at night. And then there's the glory of the stars. And within the stars, some of them look more glorious to us because of their proximity and intensity in the night sky. What he's saying is there's a kind of glory when you hold a cuddly puppy, right? But there's another kind of glory entirely when you watch uh, the, the, the sun set on the ocean's cresting waves. And they're both glorious. The glory of a puppy... The glory of a sunset on the ocean. But they are a different kind of glory. There's also a glory when you go out and the, the moon hits your eye like a big pizza pie, right? The moonlit night. And, and that's a different kind of glory when, when there's no light pollution and you can look up and you can see all these different constellations and you can watch as they move across the night sky. There's a different glory in each of those situations. Friends, our Creator can make our resurrected bodies fit for eternity, fit for His glory, fit for intimacy, camaraderie, and indeed ecstasy with the Almighty. Do you know why? Because our Creator does not lack in variety. This is not a problem for God Almighty. Scripture is saying that right now, you and I have a natural body. That's all we know. And we have this natural body because we bear the image of the first Adam. But if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you might be in this body right now. You might have been born into the first Adam naturally, but you can be born again, John 3, supernaturally into the body of Christ through faith in Christ. Now, if you are born naturally, there's the possibility of being born spiritually. And if you bear the, the, the marks of the first Adam, which we all do as humans... Those of us who put our faith in the last Adam will bear the marks of the last Adam, Jesus Christ. Listen carefully to his logic in verse 44. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, hey, there is a spiritual body. And thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. 
But it is not the spiritual that comes first. See, everybody's born as a baby, and some of us are born again as believers. It is not the, the, the spiritual that comes first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. Verse 47, the first man was from the earth, a man of dust, and guess what? To the dust he's going to return. But the second man is from heaven, and if you are in Christ, then you will be with him in heaven. Verse 48, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born in the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Now, it's critically important we understand what the Bible is and is not saying in this passage. In comparing the natural body with the, uh, the natural body we now possess with the spiritual body we shall possess, God is not contrasting the physical with the uh, spiritual. That's not the dichotomy Scripture's making. God is not contrasting the material, you can touch it, with the immaterial, you can't touch it. No, we know that because Jesus had a resurrected body, and his body was physical, and it was also material, and that was quite clear. Uh, you could see Jesus, you could touch Jesus, you could touch the wounds that Jesus had. Yet Jesus could eat fish on the beach, he could digest, ingest, and he could also prepare the meal. But Jesus' resurrected body, while physical and material and tangible, it was also different, wasn't it? Jesus could walk through walls. When the, the room the disciples were in, the door was locked, He entered. So there was something beyond, even as there's something we can understand. Now, in the Greek, and we don't read the Greek, so I'm going to try and take us there. In the Greek, the Greek text calls our current fallen natural bodies by the word psukikos, psukikos bodies. But it talks about our future resurrected spiritual bodies as being a pneumatikos body. Two different kinds of bodies, sukikos and pneumatikos. Both are physical and material. However, just as each has a different derivation, because each has a different origination, one comes from Adam and one comes from Christ. Well, that means that each is going to have a different inclination and that's going to lead to a different orientation and disposition. What do I mean? The natural body takes all of its cues from fallen Adam. And that means that our natural body naturally falls into sin. The natural body craves to please itself. But, but the spiritual body takes its cues from Christ. And therefore, it's incorruptible when it comes to sin. And, and the spiritual body is just like Christ and it craves to please the Father forever. There's a vast difference between the proclivities of these two entities. Genesis 6-5 describes our natural bodies, natural inclination. Genesis 6-5 says that the inclination of the thoughts of their heart was only evil all the time. No matter where I go in this body, sin is right there with me, beckoning, calling, encouraging, tempting, deluding. However, in, in John 8.29, it, it so well describes the, the, the spiritual body's supernatural proclivities because it's going to be like Jesus. And Jesus could say what you and I can't say, and that is this, I always do the things that are pleasing to the Father. John 8, 29, I always do the things that are pleasing to the Father. So taken in conjunction, John 8, 29, with Romans 8, 29, for those whom He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son. You and I, if we put our faith in Christ, God is shaping and moving and making us and will ultimately perfect us so that our affections are correct. They're not a misdirect towards sin, but they're only pointed towards always following God. That means, my friends, that our resurrected bodies will yearn to please God and they will be incapable of ever choosing corruption again. Like our Lord Jesus, friends, we are going to love God 
by obeying His commandments. We're going to do that 100% of the time. And we're going to do it from the very bottom of our new hearts. In our resurrected bodies, we will easily follow the guidance of the psalmist who says, serve the Lord with gladness. Coming before Him with joyful singing. That will not be hard in our resurrected bodies. In our resurrected bodies, we will follow the command of Philippians to rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. In our resurrected bodies, we're going to experience fully what we now only know partially. Jesus told us in John 17.3, this is eternal life. That they would know You. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom You've sent. Now, there's so much more we'd like to know about God and about Jesus, but but we only see this partially. In our resurrected bodies, we'll have all of eternity to fellowship with God intimately, and this will become an increasing reality that we will know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom He has sent. Now, since our resurrected bodies are imperishable, that means they're eternally durable. That means we have all of eternity to get to know the one true God increasingly intimately. But we're going to have higher and higher levels of intimacy and camaraderie that are going to expand all throughout all of eternity. I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles for a minute to Revelation chapter 2 and verse 17 because it gives us a glimpse of this special intimacy. And saints miss it. Revelation 2 and verse 17. Revelation 2 and verse 17. We get a glimpse at this intimacy and camaraderie an ecstasy we'll have with the Almighty. In Revelation 2.17, the Lord Jesus says, He who has ear, let him hear to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone. Well, what's on that white stone? With a new name written on that stone. That is, God is going to call you by a name. Not the name your parents chose. Not the name that people called you in high school that somehow stuck with you that you can't wait to never hear again. God is going to call you a new name that He has written on stone. It's not transient. Now, here's the really interesting thing. That no one knows except for the one who receives it. That is, God who knows the very hairs of your head is going to call out to you, and He's going to have a personal name that's personalized to you because He loves you so much. You're not just a a nameless, faceless object. You're an object that He has especially named, and no one else will be able to say that name because there's an intimacy and an ecstasy and camaraderie in eternity with the Almighty. Praise God we get a resurrected body so we can experience this. So what will our resurrected bodies be like? Well, they will be a body fit for eternity. They will be built for God's glory. They will enable us to experience intimacy, camaraderie, and ecstasy with the Almighty. And that brings us then to our second question today. What will the resurrection be like? So our resurrected bodies are going to be what we've just described. But what's the resurrection itself going to be like? Well, the first thing that the Bible wants to tell us is it's instantaneous. That the resurrection is instantaneous. Verse 52, in a moment, here's the word, in the twinkling of an eye. How long of a moment, right? You know, he says, very soon and I'll be with you. It's been 2,000 years later. (laughs) A thousand years is a day. No, no, no. In a moment, that the resurrection, in the twinkling of an eye, and we'll unpack that in the Greek in just a moment, at the last trumpet, that is when it's time for this to occur, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. Now the Greek reads, in atomo, in repe. That clears it up, right? For those of you that are a little weak on your Greek, in atomo, it means, in our English, in atomo is how we translate in a moment. In atomo is the word from which we get our our word atom, A-T-O-M. And it means a span of time so short that it's no longer divisible into a smaller unit. It's the smallest unit of time imaginable in a tomo, in that kind of a moment, instantaneously. And then he expands it to say, well, let me just show you kind of what that feels like. It feels like this, in the twinkling of an eye. What is that all about? Well, 
It's really the Greek word in repe, uh, which more precisely is the time it takes for your eye to move to look at something else. So look at something for a second, then look over there and look back. How long did that take? Well, you did it twice, and you're only going to do it once. That's how fast it is. It's the movement of the eye to a new object. Verse 52 tells us, therefore, that the resurrection of our bodies are going to be instantaneous. Now, verses 53 through 57 tells us that the resurrection of our bodies will be point B as well. It will not just be instantaneous, but my friends, it's going to be victorious. It will be victorious. Look at verse 53. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass what is written. And here it is. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. He overcame sin and death through the cross and resurrection. Right now, because of our fallen natures as fallen creatures in these fallen bodies, when you put God's righteous law in front of a sinner like me, well, we recoil in rebellion. The presence of the law gives me an awareness of where to sin. It makes me, it elicits in me what's already resident in me, which is my fallenness. The law is not bad. But since we are, the presence of the law begins to reveal my problem. Without the law, I could really Italy easily kid myself into thinking, I'm fine. You could kid yourself into thinking, you're fine. Because the Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked in Jeremiah 17.9. But, but the law of God, when it reveals the standard of God, reveals that I fall short of the standard of God. I fall short of what God desires. The, the law reveals that I have a heart of rebellion. Because the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. I need a new heart that has a new heartbeat. And so, in a sense, the, the power of sin is the law because the presence of the law always arouses my inner rebelliousness. 1 John 3.4 puts it like this, everyone who sins breaks the law because sin is lawlessness. This is God's standard. I want my own standard. Disobedience then brings death. That is, disobedience has a consequence. Romans 6 puts it like this, for the wages of sin is death. When there was no sin in the world, there was no death in the world. The first sin brought all the death that we've ever had. And yet death's sting and death's victory are overcome by the work of Christ on the cross for each of us. He talks about the sting of death and the sting of victory. And, and I want you to think for a second, maybe this will help you get your arms around what Christ has done for us. Uh, it reminds me of the story of a, of a little girl who went on a picnic with her daddy. And it was a beautiful spring day like today. The sun was out shining. And that meant the bees were out circling. Now here's the problem. The little girl has a deathly allergy to bees. And so the presence of a bee isn't unsettling, it's terrifying. It is a mortal problem. And, and so, sure enough, along comes this busy, buzzing bee who always seems to want to come for our Coke cans. And, and the little girl is so terrified, so her father reaches out and grabs the bee. He catches the bee. He doesn't say anything. He just holds it for a moment. And then he lets it go. And the girl shrieks, and she's terrified. Daddy, why would you let the bee go? But rather than explain, he holds out the palm of his hand. What's in the palm? It's the stinger. He's taken away the only thing the bee can do to harm her. He's taken away the sting. And that's like Jesus Christ, who took away the sting of death by taking on death at the cross. So any of us who put our faith in Jesus Christ, the sting of death has already been meted out. God himself died in our place. And that brings us to verse 55. And I hope that brings it a little bit alive. Oh, death, where is your victory? 
O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So what will the resurrection be like? Well, the Bible says it'll be instantaneous. It will be victorious. And there's one more essential feature. It's point C in our outlines today. Here's the part that was mysterious. It's going to happen in sequence. And the dead in Christ will rise first, and then those who have yet to die will meet the Lord in the air. Here's the part that was mysterious. It's going to happen in sequence. With the dead in Christ rising first, and those who are still alive at the rapture meeting the Lord in the air. Look at verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. So nobody knew this until the Bible started explaining this as a New Testament truth. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. That is, some of us won't die, but all of us will eventually get resurrected bodies. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. They're going to get their resurrected bodies. The dead will rise from the grave and we shall be changed. You see, Jesus promises this in John chapter 6. My Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him, will have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. And so, the question becomes, well, well what happens to the Christian who, who's died, but the rapture hasn't happened yet? So, so for 2,000 years, people have been in Christ, but they've also been in the grave. What happened to Grandma? What happened to my loved one? What happened to this person that we love, who loved Jesus? If their body hasn't been resurrected, what happened? Well, when Christians die, we immediately go to the presence of the Father. The thief on the cross was assured of this in Luke 23, 43. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. When our loved one dies in Christ, if you're a Christian, you go immediately and eternally to be with God Almighty. However, we go just in spirit. We do not yet get our resurrected bodies. 2 Corinthians 5 clarifies that while we go to be with the Father immediately, we do not at that time receive our resurrected body. Paul speaks of our present body, the body you're walking around in right now, as sort of like a temporary tent. It's not our permanent dwelling, it's just where we live right now. Like the people of God lived in tents before one day they were given a, a city. Uh, they met in a tabernacle before they had a physical temple. Paul speaks of our present bodies like this temporary tent. And that in a certain sense, we long for our eternal dwelling, our resurrection temple body. And, and he speaks of some saints who have sort of an in-between moment. For those whose tents have worn out through death, but whose eternal temple has yet to been handed out in the last day. The Bible says those saints are in some sense unclothed, as it were. That they are temporarily unbodied believers. They're totally conscious. They're not asleep, as in not able to be in the presence of God, but rather just their spirit is with God. And that makes sense because God is spirit. That works just fine. So 2 Corinthians 5 puts it this way. For, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavenlies. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan. We want something better. Being burdened, not only that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. Our groaning isn't, get me out of this body so I can finally be released to be all I need to be. No, it's get me to the body that will help me be all that I've ever wanted to be. To be further clothed. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared for us this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. The Spirit came to live in us, and our spirit will go to be with God forever. And so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body right now, we are away from the Lord because He's in heaven. But, but we walk by faith, not by sight. And yes, we are of good courage. We would rather be away from this body to be at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. Now, 
1 Corinthians, that was 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians in our passage today speaks of a sequence of how this happens. That those in Christ who are already dead, when the trumpet sounds, they're going to rise from their graves and be in the air. And then all the Christians on planet earth who have not yet died, those rapture age saints, when the, when the rapture happens and they're alive, they're going to meet their brothers in the air. And all of this will then usher in the tribulation period of Scripture. 1 Thessalonians 4, starting in verse 13, puts it like this. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. That is, your Christian brother who has died physically. That you may not grieve as others who have no hope. He's not saying don't grieve. When, when grandma who loved Jesus passes away, you can grieve. Jesus went to the tomb of Lazarus and he wept, even though moments later he resurrected Lazarus. Why? Why would he weep if moments later? Because grief is real. Grief is part of the human condition. Grief is not something we have to say, oh, Christians are Stoics and they don't grieve. No, it's just that we don't have to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. That that's all there ever is. No, no, no. There's much more in store and you shall see them again if you are in Christ and they are in Christ. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and he rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, who have died in this tent. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. They're going to get front-of-the-line privileges, my friends. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven, and with the cry of command, and with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, what we already heard in our passage today. And the dead in Christ, well, they're going to rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and we will always be with the Lord. That, that will start an inseparable situation forever. And then he says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. And so there have been many funerals, many graveside services where I have felt led to go to 1 Thessalonians because the person there in front of us well, the person is with Jesus because they put their faith in Christ. And one day, those bodies will be called forth into the air and they will be better than whatever we knew that put them there. We need to remember when the Bible talks about a mystery, behold, I tell you a mystery, that a mystery in the Bible is not some unsolvable riddle. But rather, when the Bible uses the word mysterion, it means I'm going to tell you something that the people didn't know before I revealed it now. And so God is graciously revealing to us, His church, what happens to those who die in Christ at the resurrection. God had already taught in the Old Testament about the believer's bodily resurrection. The oldest book in the Bible, the book of Job, says, and yet I will see in my flesh God after I have died. But now in the, Old Test in the New Testament, he's giving a refinement. God's providing a new revelation. He's providing an important clarification that, that this resurrection is going to happen in stages. And the first stage is the resurrection of the dead in Christ, immediately following the living who will be caught up in Christ. Now there is so much meat in 1 Corinthians 15. We've spent three Sundays in 1 Corinthians 15. There, there is so much powerful, pertinent truth just in the 21 verses of our portion of 1 Corinthians 15 today. But I don't want us to miss the Holy Spirit's conclusion in this whole chapter. There's so much that we could talk about that we would never get to what he gets to as the therefore of why all these verses are therefore. And that is the therefore in verse 58. And that brings us to our final question. What difference does this make in my daily life? So what? What difference does all this resurrection talk, resurrection bodies, resurrection realities, what difference does this make in my daily life? And the Bible says this, verse 58, therefore, my beloved brothers, he's talking to the Christians here, he's no longer talking to the acid tongue critic and cynic, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, be always abounding in the work of the Lord, be knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. He starts by saying, my beloved brothers, he is not berating them because they're confused. He's not belittling them because they didn't understand. He's protecting them, though, from the foolish 
false wisdom of the culture that said there's no resurrection. He's saying, reject those people and embrace the Scripture. Embrace the plain teaching of the Word of God. And while Paul called out the critics and cynics in our passage, he just calls them fools. Notice he calls the church his beloved brethren. There are times where we have to say hard truths that run very, very much against the culture, but very much alongside the Scripture. And you say those things because you love people, not because you don't. But they don't always feel that way when they have a deeply embedded cultural understanding and they're just learning to understand the Scripture. Since we ought to have an unswerving confidence in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, for this is the Gospel, verses 1-12 to of our passage. Since we ought to have an unswerving confidence in the bodily resurrection of Christians, because Christ is our first fruits, and that's the message of verses 12 through 34. And since we ought to have an unswerving confidence in the mechanics of our resurrected bodies, that they're going to be suitable for eternity with the Almighty, that's verses 35 through 57 we've covered today, so what? So what? Here's what. 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now, there's only one verb in this sentence in the Greek. Everything that in English kind of looks verbal is really a participle or an adjective or an adverb except for one verb. So grammatically, that means there's one driver that's driving this whole sentence and everything else is like a, like a, like a moon around the, the planet, right? And this driver is a race car driver. It's an imperative. That means it's a command. It's not an option. It's a command from God to us, and we must do it. And the command is genesthe. It means be. And it's in the second person plural, which means that all Christians, the entire church in Corinth, everyone who hears this letter who's in Christ, all of us, all Christians, are commanded to be this, to be what? And that is where the adjective immovable and the attributive participle abounding and the adverb always and the participle knowing come into play. Listen again. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, be always abounding in the work of the Lord. Be always knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And so I ask you, Christian, based on the command of this Scripture, based on the whole point of chapter 15, is it your unswerving conviction? Are you utterly immovable in your faith in the resurrection because of Jesus' resurrection? Are you steadfast? Are you immovable on this point? Because if you are, you can face any sacrifice even to the point of shedding your own blood, of giving your own life, because you know this world is not ultimately your home. And the loss, even of our bodies, is not the end of the story. The Bible asks, are you steadfast in this? Other passages speak about not being steadfast. It uses the term being double-minded, which makes you unstable. Other passages speak about the worries of this world and the deceitfulness of wealth pulling you away from seeking first Christ and His kingdom today. Can it be said of you personally that, that you are always abounding in the work of the Lord? Or have you kind of decided, I'm going to leave that to others? There are people more gifted or more interested or have more time for this stuff than I do. Maybe Satan is whispering to you, You've put in your time. It's time for someone else to do something. And maybe they should. That doesn't mean you should stop serving Jesus. Friends, as long as we draw breath, we ought to be just what Romans 12.11 commands us. Never, never be lacking in zeal. But keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. I know many saints that for a season they're on fire. 
but they don't stay on fire. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, and then do what? Serve the Lord with it. Don't just be white hot and crazy. Use it for the kingdom of God. And then it's very practical. Be joyful in hope. A lot of reasons we can be discouraged. Be joyful in hope. Be patient in affliction. We want affliction to be over with. Scripture says be patient. And then be faithful in prayer. It's a practical application of what is a, what is a, a zealous person in the Lord look like? What is someone really serving the Lord? He's joyful in hope. He's patient in affliction. He's faithful in prayer. One biblical commentator in summarizing this verse 58 injunction said something that I thought was very poignant. It's kind of pointed, so sorry for that. He said, quote, What a word Paul gives to the countless Christians who work and pray and give and suffer as little as they can. How can we be satisfied with the, the trivial, insignificant, and short-lived things of this world? How can we take it easy? When so many around us are dead spiritually and so many fellow believers are in need of edification and encouragement and help of every sort. This biblical writer says, reasonable rest is important and necessary. But if we err, Paul is saying, we should err on the side of doing more work for the Lord, not less. But leisure and relaxation are two great modern idols, he writes, to which many Christians seem quite, un, or quite willing to bow down. And in proper proportion, recreation and diversions can help restore our energy and increase our effectiveness, but they can also easily become ends to themselves, demanding more and more of our attention, concern, our time, and our energy. More than one believer has relaxed and hobbied himself completely out of the work of the Lord. End quote. Perhaps it's not leisure and pleasure that has started to dampen your enthusiasm for the work of the Lord. Perhaps you have worked feverishly and tirelessly, but the fruit has not come easily or abundantly or as timely as you had supposed it would. If that's the case, listen in again to verse 58. My beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding, in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. If you were reading this in the Greek as it was originally written, this sentence jumps out at you because the Greek phrase, in the Lord, is out of sequence. It is intentionally pushed to the end of the sentence to draw incredible emphasis on that statement. Jesus wants us to remember when we're weary, when we're tired, when we're not seeing results, when we work in the Lord. It's never in vain. His word never returns void. His will is never ultimately thwarted. His plan is never ultimately diverted. Which is why I want to leave you with one scripture today. Write it in your Bibles next to this passage. It's Galatians 6, 9, and 10. And I think it complements well the therefore in verse 58. Let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you, and we need you, and we trust you. Lord Jesus, we don't trust ourselves. Our heart is prone to wander. Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. We feel the lure and pull of our old nature. It is always and ever before us, and indeed, many times we feel like what you described in Genesis, that the, every inclination of our heart is only evil all the time. We understand the words of Paul in Romans 7, that the good that we want to do, we do not do, and the thing that we hate, we end up doing because we are but dust. And you know that, and you've said that, and you're merciful in that, and you don't expect dust to become gold. And so you came, and you took on all of the pain, and all of the difficulty, and all of the temptation, and you did what we could not. You defeated sin and death. You always did the Father's will. And you took away the sting of death 
Where is its victory? And so, Lord Jesus, we ask that You would help us to be shaped more and more into the image of Your Son daily, that we would not grow weary in well-doing, that we would therefore, that we would always be abounding in the work of the Lord. Uh, Lord, give us a balance. You call us to have families and, 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 and festivities and rest. And You're good. At the same time, we could make something good into something bad and we could become obsessed with rest and our own personal agendas and not be busy about seeking first your kingdom and your righteousness and all these other things could be attended to. And so the heart of man is wicked and we look to the Son of Man who overcame it. We ask, Lord Jesus, that you might give us this week a greater attentiveness to being abounding in the work of the Lord, to using our time, our talents, and indeed our treasure to investing those things into things that are lasting instead of things that are fleeting. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus, whom we love. Amen.